Well, two decades ago, Christ Community Church made the news, and it was not a good thing at the time. The leader of our student ministries had just been caught in several immoral relationships, including one with a high school girl, which meant that he was headed to prison, and Christ Community Church was on the front page of the newspaper. Now, just before this happened, the weekend before the news came out, before any of us learned about it, I was hanging out on the sidelines of one of my kids' soccer games, and I was mingling with other, other parents, and they knew me to be the senior pastor of Christ Community Church. We had just done this huge student outreach, and many of their sons and daughters had attended, and so they had all sorts of wonderful things to say about our church. I was kind of a rock star on the sidelines, going up and down, greeted like a celebrity. Then the next week, the bombshell hit. The following weekend, I went to a soccer game totally different atmosphere. Nobody greeted me. Nobody said hello. Nobody said, why don't you put your lawn chair next to mine? I was shunned. There, there, there was a look of suspicion on some faces. Other people seemed to wear a bit of a smugness on their face. I read into it. You know, they're thinking, you, you church people are all alike. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You ever heard that one? In fact, let's do a quick poll. How many of you uh, know somebody who's been turned off to the Christian faith because of the bad example of a Christian or a church or whatever. Okay, everybody, right? Everybody. Now, we're, we're in the fifth week of a series on doubts. This is the final week of our I Have My Doubts series. We, we've been taking a look at the things that uh, make people skeptical about the Christian faith, the doubts that keep them from becoming followers of Jesus. So week one in the series, it was Easter weekend, we took a look at the resurrection of God's Son. We laid out good evidence for this being an actual historical event. Week two, doubt number two, the existence of God, the most basic spiritual doubt of all. And we rolled out some clues that point to God's presence in our world. Week three had to do with the doubt about the goodness of God. If God is good, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow bad things to happen? And, you know, we, we wrestled with that. Week four, last weekend, had to do with the fairness of God. How can Jesus say that he's the only way to the heavenly Father? What about people who don't get to hear about Jesus? Now, today we're taking a look at the fifth and the final doubt has to do with the people of God. Here's what the doubt sounds like. If a relationship with Jesus Christ is supposed to make a positive difference in the lives of his followers, why isn't that always the case? In fact, truth be known, sometimes just the opposite of that is the case. We encounter people who profess a relationship with Jesus who are horrible advertisements for their faith, like that leader of the student ministries at Christ Community Church two decades ago. So maybe this is a doubt that has kept you or somebody you know from becoming a Christ follower. Today I want to take a closer look at what's behind this doubt because I think there's some faulty reasoning that needs to be corrected. If you're evaluating the Christian faith based upon the lives of the people who claim that faith for themselves, there are four things you need to keep in mind. If you haven't taken your outline out yet, by the way, you, you want to write these four things down because every hand went up. We all know people who have dismissed the Christian faith because of the lives of Christ followers. 
So what do you say? What do you say in response? Here's four things that need to be kept in mind. Number one, not all professing Christians are genuine Christ followers. Okay, not all professing Christians are genuine Christ followers. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 7. So take your Bible, turn to Matthew 7. We're going to look at four major texts today. But they all come from the same Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Just a week or so ago, I was with 50 people, just about 50 people from Christ Community Church in Israel. And we, we stood on the north shore one day of the Sea of Galilee where this sermon was preached. Okay, it's not actually a saltwater sea, it's a freshwater lake about 13 miles long, seven miles across. But on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, there is a sloping lake shore that would provide the perfect amphitheater for thousands of people to gather for Jesus' voice to be projected clearly so everybody could hear. So that's what I was thinking as I looked at the passage this week, just remembering that scene. Let me read to you an excerpt from the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, meaning the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let me reread the first verse, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, people can talk the talk, but if they're not walking the walk, they're not genuine Christ followers. What's worse, they're not headed to heaven. Now, please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not teaching that we are saved by our good deeds. You know, that we're saved by the extent to which we do the will of the Father in heaven. We know from what all of Scripture teaches, we're saved by faith in Christ, by surrendering our lives to the one who paid for all our bad deeds on the cross. But when we surrender our lives to him, Jesus is suggesting here it ought to make a radical difference. When we surrender our lives to Christ, we want to do the will of the Father in heaven. We want to start doing things that please Jesus. We want to stop doing things that offend Jesus. I tried to explain this to our limo driver a week ago who picked us up at the airport when we got back from Israel. We got into the car, and uh, the guy said to us, he said, well, where you been? And I said, Israel. And he said, no, you mean Palestine. I'm a Palestinian Muslim. I said, oh. I could tell it was going to be an interesting conversation. So, you know, we started chatting about religion, and, and I asked him, I said, so tell me what, what your religion teaches you about how you get to heaven. I mean, how does a person attain salvation in your Muslim faith? And so he proceeded to, you know, to scroll through a bunch of things that were important for him to do, certain things that, you know, bases that had to be touched in order for him to enter into the eternal presence of Allah. And he got done, and I said, you know, my, my Christian faith is, is very different from that. Big concept in Christianity is what we call grace. 
Grace means I, I could never earn my way by doing good deeds into heaven. In fact, just the opposite is the case. I've done so many bad things, I've disqualified myself from heaven. But fortunately, God sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for all my bad things. And because I've surrendered my life to him, he's forgiven me. He's promised me an eternal home in heaven. And he immediately retorted. He said, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Which I I had to stifle a smile because here's an American cliche coming out of a Muslim. I wanted to say, so that's in the Quran, huh? No free lunch. Got to remember that. And, you know, he continued. He said, I know Christians who think they can live any way they please and still go to heaven. And I thought to myself, you know, you probably do know people like that. I I know people like that who, who think they can live any way they please and still go to heaven. But not all professing Christ followers are are genuine believers, are they? Genuine Christ followers are determined to live Christ-pleasing lives. That's what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I, I cringed when my Muslim driver said he knows Christians who think they can live any way they please and still go to heaven. Let me say, friends, just because people call Jesus Lord... Just because they believe certain things about Jesus, just because they go to church or occasionally read the Bible, doesn't make them the real deal. So if you're a skeptic, don't let imposters cause you to doubt the credibility of the Christian faith. Now, if you are a skeptic, you may be thinking to yourself at this point, well, okay, that that explains people who profess to be Christ followers but don't act like Christ. Christians. I get it. Not everybody's genuine. But, but what about those who've genuinely surrendered their lives to Jesus and don't behave like it sometimes? Who are not good walking advertisements for their faith? How do you explain those people? Well, let me first sheepishly admit that I'd be one of those people who profess a faith in Christ that I sometimes don't live. I mean, imagine this. You're driving home from church today, and you look up in your rear view mirror, and some dude's tailgating you. Okay, he's uh, being a real pest. He's aggressive. He's rude. And, and suddenly he swings around you, and as he flies past you, you look over, and it's me. Okay? You say, it's Pastor Jim. Because I don't always drive like a Christ follower should. This is not a hypothetical illustration. (laughs) So when people who profess Christ don't behave like Christ followers, does that give skeptics the right to say, this whole Christian thing is a crock? I mean, it's worthless. I don't think so for a couple of reasons. First, you know, the foundational truth of Christianity is all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about Christ followers. It doesn't fluctuate based upon how Christ followers are living it out. Truth is truth, even if we aren't allowing it to impact our lives as we should. Truth about Jesus is truth. If you're a skeptic, that's what you got to wrestle with, the truth about Jesus. You know, the second thing I want to say is that when Christ followers don't behave as Christ followers should... You have no idea how far they've already come in their spiritual journey. So cut them some slack. 
You know, one of the, the best parts of our trip to Israel was hanging out with 50 people from our church, uh, many of whom I didn't know that well before we left for Israel, but you eat every meal together and you travel together for two weeks and uh, you really get to know people. And it was especially gratifying to hear the impact that our church has had in their lives, their spiritual growth. And one night, Sue and I were seated across the table having dinner with a, a woman who said to us, she said, you know, you would not have liked me before I became a Christ follower. She said, I was not a very nice person. My, my husband was thinking about getting rid of me. So I'm looking at this woman, and she's been a believer now for a number of years, and I, I did find that hard to believe. Very wonderful person. But suppose for a moment that you'd met her like one or two years after she'd surrendered her life to Christ. Now, God's doing a makeover in her life, but at this point in time, it's the beginning stages. So you'd be looking at her concluding, no, she's not a very nice person yet. But, but suppose at the same time you met another woman who didn't claim to be a Christ follower and yet by nature has a pleasing personality. Now you put those two women next to each other and you say, I'll take the unbeliever. You know, this Christ follower doesn't behave like a Christ follower should. Let me warn you about something. If you're new to Christ Community Church, all of the people you're going to meet at our church have messes in their lives, including the pastor. You know, some of them are big messes. Some of them are smaller messes. But, you know, we're in process you know, once we surrender our lives to Christ, God begins the makeover. But don't evaluate the effectiveness of Christianity based upon where we are today. Evaluate the effectiveness of our faith on the basis of how far we've come. You know, back to my illustration of almost running you off the road in my car. Yeah, I don't always drive like a Christ follower should. But you should have seen the way I drove before Jesus got a hold of my life. <laughs> So number one, not all professing Christ followers are genuine, and even those who are genuine Christ followers, we're a work in progress. Number two, historical accounts of Christian violence have been greatly exaggerated. Okay, why is it Christians get a bad reputation? Number two, historical accounts of Christian violence have been greatly exaggerated. A couple of months ago, President Obama made a comment at the annual prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. that angered many people. It was a comment about some of the recent atrocities committed by ISIS. Now, here's what the president said. This is a quote. He said, lest we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. Now, what do you think about that statement? Is it true? And is the comparison the president made a valid comparison? Let me start by saying I think it's true. You know, I think that people have committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. I think that's undeniable. However, I don't think the comparison he made between ISIS and the Crusades and, and whatnot is valid for a couple of reasons. First of all, in the case of ISIS, now follow this, Muslim extremists are acting in accord, in accord with what they believe their spiritual leader Muhammad has taught in the Quran. 
Now, I checked this out on a, online on a website. I discovered there are 109 verses in the Quran that encourage Muslims to wage war against unbelievers. They're called the sword verses, 109 verses. Now, now let me hasten to add that peace-loving Muslims would tell you, well, these are not meant to be interpreted literally. I mean, we're just being told metaphorically to live a, a life of rambunctious faith. But I think it's kind of hard to explain away 109 sword verses. So, so, so the extremists, the Muslim extremists in ISIS are acting in accord with what they believe their prophet has taught them. By way of contrast, and this is an important contrast to see, those who do violence in the name of Christ are not acting in accord. They're acting in opposition to what their spiritual leader Jesus taught in the Bible. You see the difference? Okay, by no stretch of the imagination are people who do violence in Jesus' name, are they good Christians? Just the opposite, according to Scripture. Now, let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to look at chapter 5. So flip back a couple of chapters. Verse 43, this is what Jesus taught. Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, stop there. Jesus said, you guys have heard, you know, it's important to love your neighbors, hate your enemies. Where had they heard this? You have heard it was said. Where had they heard this? Well, the first part of the statement, love your neighbor, they had probably heard from the rabbi at the local synagogue because it's a quote right out of the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. But what about the second part of that statement, and hate your enemies? Where had they heard that? Had they heard that from the rabbi at the synagogue? Is that in the Old Testament? No, it's nowhere in the Old Testament. So why does Jesus say, you have heard it said? Because this was common parlance on the streets. This, this is what we've all heard, right, to this day. Screw people before they could screw you, right? You know, this is what we've heard. Hate your enemies. By way of contrast, Jesus teaches something dramatically different. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. In fact, one of Jesus' most famous parables, the story of the Good Samaritan, underscores this point. At the time, Jews and Samaritans, they were sworn enemies. They didn't get along with each other. So Jesus tells the story about a Samaritan who's on the road, and he sees a beat-up Jew lying on the side of the road, you know, having been pummeled by robbers, and he stops, and he cares for the man with love and compassion. Jesus is underscoring this point that we're to love not hate our enemies. Nobody who's a genuine follower of Jesus can claim to commit acts of violence in Jesus' name. Hateful violence is absolutely contrary to what Jesus taught. Now, one clarification here. We're talking about hateful violence. Don't hate your enemies, Jesus is saying. Love them. Okay, what about the sort of violence that a policeman may have to, to use in order to stop a murderer? Okay, what, what about the sort of violence that an army may have to use in order to stop an evil army, like an army of Nazis? It's not what Jesus is addressing here. 
He's talking about hateful violence, violence for those that we write off as enemies. It's never an expression of genuine Christianity. So I don't think it's a good comparison to, you know, to compare ISIS violence with the violence of so-called Christians. Here's a second reason I don't agree with Obama's comparison of ISIS atrocities with the Crusades and the Inquisition. And by the way, I don't blame him. I'm not angry with him for making that comment. The truth of the matter is that comment's made all the time. We hear it all the time. Okay, but the, the main point I'm making here and the second reason I don't think that's a valid comparison is that the historical accounts of Christian violence have been greatly exaggerated. Now, now again, please understand, I, you know, I'm not making a case for Christian violence. You know, Christian violence is wrong and besides that, it's not Christian. But it's also been greatly exaggerated. Let, let me give you a little background here. Uh, Thomas Madden is a professor of medieval history. He's an expert on the Crusades. In fact, after 9-11, the White House called in Thomas Madden to be a consultant because he knows so much about the Middle East historically. And he writes that the driving force behind the Crusades was not as cut and dry as critics sometimes make it out to be. He says it's much more complicated. Listen to what he writes. He writes, the Crusades were not the brainchild of an ambitious pope or rapacious knights. That's what you sometimes hear. But they were a response, a response to more than four centuries of conquests in which Muslims had already captured two-thirds of the old Christian world. At some point, Christianity as a faith and culture had to defend itself or be subsumed by Islam. The Crusades were that defense. The Crusades were that defense. And Madden continues, he says, Muslims who lived in Crusade I territories were generally allowed to retain their property and livelihood and always their religion. Can you believe that? Does that sound to you like the current policies of ISIS? Yeah, we're going to conquer you, but retain your livelihood and your possessions and your religion. That's okay with us. And once again, let me say that the Crusades were not all sweetness and light. They, like all warfare, there was occasionally senseless violence and barbarous brutality and criminal activity on the part of some Crusaders. But I want you to know that those excesses on the part of crusaders were always strongly condemned by the church. The church said that is the behavior of rogue knights, not Christ-honoring soldiers. And what's more, don't miss this, you know, the, the, the estimate of how many people were killed by the crusades tops out at tens of thousands. Now that sounds like a big number, but let me put it in perspective, thousands. Because I want you to keep this in mind the next time somebody tries to tell you that religion kills, so let's get rid of religion. Really? Okay, let's take a look at some countries that did that. They got rid of religion. Let, let, let's start with uh, Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler, replacing Christianity with socialism. Six million Jews. Six million. We're not talking thousands now. We're talking millions exterminated. What about the USSR? You know, according to Nobel Prize winner Alexander Solzhenitsyn, between the years 1917 and 1959, 
under Lenin and then Stalin and then Khrushchev, an estimated 66 million Russians were put to death. 66 million. Or how about communist China under Mao Zedong, an estimated 26.3 million Chinese put to death. See, the so-called Christian crusades at their worst don't begin, don't begin to compare in violence with many notorious secular movements. The same thing could be said, by the way, about the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition lasted three centuries. And there is no denying this was a dark blot on the history of Christianity. However, you need to know that over the entire three centuries, how many people do you think were killed? According to historians, an estimated 3,000 people. Friends, 3,000 people is less than were killed on a bad day in Soviet Russia under Comrade Stalin. See, there's no, there's no comparison here. And let me quickly add again, the, the perpetrators of the Spanish Inquisition were not acting in accord with the teaching of Jesus in Scripture. Jesus never told us to put heretics to death. And you'll never find that in the New Testament. Oh, you'll find us encouraged to share our faith with others, to do everything possible to persuade them to put their hope and their trust in Jesus as Savior and King. But we're constantly told to do this respectfully and lovingly and graciously, not coercively. So I just think this is a bad comparison and has given Christianity a bad rap. So number three, why is it we sometimes get a negative impression of Christians? Number three, tolerance has been redefined by our post-Christian culture. Some time ago I came across this definition of tolerance in Webster's Dictionary. I'm assuming it hasn't been changed, possibly it has, but this is what tolerance used to mean. To permit and respect without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing. So to permit and respect without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing. That's how everybody used to understand the meaning of tolerance. I, I don't have to agree with you, but I do have to respect your right to hold your opinion. The famous French philosopher Voltaire put it this way, although we're not sure if Voltaire said this or people just say that Voltaire said it. It sounds like something he would have said. The quote is, I disapprove of what you say, but I'll defend the right, to the death rather, your right to say it. You ever heard that one? I mean, that, that's what tolerance used to mean. But the definition has changed. In recent days, the definition has changed. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, has recently authored a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And he writes, he says, we have moved from permitting the articulation of beliefs and claims with which we do not agree, that's the classic definition of tolerance, to now asserting that all beliefs and claims are equally valid, the new definition. Now, you, you, you follow what he's saying here. We are no longer allowed to say that something is wrong. No, no, we, we're, we're, it's demanded of us that we assert all beliefs and claims are equally valid. They're all equally right. And so in this environment, when a Christ follower says gay marriage is wrong, when a Christ follower says you're spending all your money on yourself, materialism, it's wrong. 
When a Christ follower says aborting babies is wrong, sleeping with your boyfriend is wrong, people bristle and they hurl back the, the accusation, you intolerant bigot. But this is not intolerance. Now, what does Jesus say about this? I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 5. We're now in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read one verse, verse 13. Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Okay, Jesus says here he expects his followers to be salty. What does he mean by that? Well, in the first century, Jesus' day, salt had a number of important functions. It was used as a food seasoning. It was used as a fertilizer. But most importantly, salt was used as a preservative. So it was the way that you slowed decay in food. If you went to the fish market at the beginning of the day, you better eat that fish before the day was out or it would begin to spoil unless unless you had some salt that you could rub into it. What, what does this have to do with Christ followers? D.A. Carson, the Bible scholar I quoted a moment ago, he says, Christ followers are called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low or even non-existent. Christ followers are called to be a, a moral disinfectant. Now, please understand something here. Je Jesus is not asking you to assert your own personal moral values and standards. But he is expecting you as a follower of his to be a moral disinfectant in this society in which we live, at your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, Okay, to, to hold up God's moral standards as revealed in the Bible. In fact, Jesus says in the verse we just looked at, Matthew 5, 13, if you don't do that, you've lost your saltiness and you're good for nothing. That's what the verse says. Now, now that's a strange metaphor, isn't it? How can salt lose its saltiness? Seems impossible. But in, in Jesus' day, it was actually quite possible because uh, one of the sources uh, of salt was they, they would evaporate saltwater marshes. So take in some saltwater uh, marsh water and, and evaporate it, and what was left was a mixture of salt and uh, marsh crud. And so they would sell this as salt. Now, if you took it home and you, you washed it out, you would wash away the salt, and all you'd be left with is marsh crud. So Jesus is saying here, if you water down your saltiness, if you wash it out, all you're left with is marsh crud. So let me ask you, are, are, are you a salty Christ follower? Are, are you asserting in this culture in which we live biblical values, God's moral standards? You're holding them high. If you do that lovingly, if you do that respectfully, if you do that listening to others' opinions graciously, then you're tolerant, according to the classical definition of the term. Now, of course, you, you, can, you can assert biblical values in a way that's unloving and disrespectful, and you don't stop to listen to what other people have to say, in which case you are intolerant. 
But let me say to those of you who may be skeptics and you're, you're, you're thinking all Christ followers are intolerant. The minute they open their mouths and they declare, they assert biblical values, they're being intolerant. Let me tell you about some recent data that was collected on the topic of tolerance. Okay, Bradley Wright has a PhD in sociology. He's recently written a book with a real long title, a real long subtitle. The book's title, I love it. It's called, Christians are Hate-Filled Hypocrites and Other Lies You've Been Told. Did you love that? Christians are hate-filled hypocrites and other lies you've been told. Subtitle, A Sociologist Shatters Myths from the Secular and Christian Media. Okay, Dr. Wright conducted a scientific survey. He wanted to compare tolerance levels between Christ followers and non-religious people. Let, let me share with you just two of his findings. And by the way, this book is, is worth reading in its entirety. But two survey questions he asked. The first one is this. Do you regularly accept others when they're wrong? Do you regularly accept others when they're wrong? Regular church attenders, 46% said yes, we do. Non-church attenders, only 26% said yes. Isn't that interesting? Let me tell you about a second question he asked in his survey. Do you always or almost always forgive others? Christ followers, 55% said yes. The religiously unaffiliated, only 29% said yes. So look at the statistics. Does Christianity, according to the sociological survey, make a person intolerant? According to the survey, just the opposite. Makes a person more tolerant. Now, this is not to say that you're, you won't run into an occasional Christ follower you know, who's obnoxious, who's intolerant. Or you might, might, might run into a, an unbeliever who's extremely tolerant and gracious. But by and large, according to the survey, Christ followers are almost twice as tolerant as those who claim no faith. Here's a fourth reason that Christ followers sometimes get a, a, a bad reputation. Number four, the church has not been given credit for its contribution to society. Let me take you one last time to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to continue in the passage we were reading a moment ago. We stopped at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. Pick it up in verse 14. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus calls his followers here the light of the world. He says, yeah, you're a town built on a hill. Now, in the ancient world, Middle Eastern cities were often constructed of white limestone, which caused them to gleam in the sunlight. You know, having just returned from Israel, I could tell you, yeah, it's still the case today. You could see these gleaming towns from a distance, especially if they're located at the top of a hill. So what is it, according to Jesus, what is it that ought to cause his followers to stand out like this? Look again at verse 16. It's our good deeds. Our good deeds. People see those good deeds and glorify, praise our Father in heaven. 
You know, I just uh, waded through a 400-page book called How Christianity Changed the World. You know, I slogged through this book because I thought to myself, when I get to message number five in the Doubt series and I talk about Christianity, I'm going to be quoting extensively from this book, How Christianity Changed the World. And then I got to the end of my sermon preparation and realized I had about one minute left. <laughs> and so I want to make sure we have time for, for communion. So let me sum up what this book teaches by three paragraphs from the foreword to the book. The foreword to this book, How Christianity Changed the World, is written by Dr. Paul Meyer, professor of ancient history at Eastern, East, East Michigan University, excuse me, Western Michigan University. So a secular school, listen to what he writes about the contents of this book. He says, in the ancient world, Jesus' teachings elevated brutish standards of morality, halted infanticide, Okay, that's baby killing, because baby killing was routine in the pagan world. You know, babies were, you know, if you didn't want your baby, you just left it exposed, it died. It emancipated women, Christianity emancipated women, abolished slavery, inspired charities and relief organizations, created hospitals, established orphanages, and founded schools. By the way, Christianity is, you know, they pioneered these things. Not only were they involved in, in what I just read to you, they were the pioneers in these areas. In medieval times, he continues, Christianity almost single-handedly kept classical culture alive through recopying manuscripts and building libraries. It was Christians who invented colleges and universities, Christians who dignified labor as a divine vocation and extended the light of civilization to barbarians on the frontiers. In the modern era, Christian teaching, advanced science. Don't believe everything you, you hear, by the way, about Christianity being opposed to science. Okay, people like Galileo, Kepler, Newton, it's, they were all Christ followers. Christian teaching, advanced science, instilled concepts of political and social and economic freedom, fostered justice, and provided the greatest single source of inspiration for the magnificent achievements in art, architecture, music, literature that we treasure to the present day. Now, now that is a, that's an extremely brief, scholarly summary of what the church has contributed to society. I encourage you, if you're interested, read all 400 pages. It's amazing the impact that the church, Christ followers, have had in the world. But, but as, I, as I wrap up the sermon, before we turn to communion, I want to tell you a real-life illustration that backs up this academic point. Okay, I want to tell you about a friend of mine named J.R. J.R. is a Christ follower who attends Christ Community Church. And uh, in spite of the fact that he is the owner of a fabulous restaurant that's extremely busy, he's thrown himself into our community impact ministry, particularly loves to do disaster relief work. So I didn't know if you know we've got teams that do this, but if there's a flood, a fire, a tornado, I mean, we try to provide a team to go and help out sometimes multiple teams. And so he's really plugged into disaster relief. In fact, on his own nickel, he went down to North Carolina headquarters of Samaritan's Purse, uh, one of the, the organizations that we often work with closely to get specialized training in disaster relief. That's how serious he is about being part of our teams, leading our teams. But just as he's ramping up his involvement in disaster relief, a personal crisis strikes. JR is diagnosed with a form of rheumatoid arthritis that's 
Uh, it's rare, very severe. In fact, he has to take chemo drugs, if you can imagine this, just to, to hold this in check. Now, several weeks ago, uh, Rochelle nearby was hit with a tornado. Those of you who are watching in DeKalb, it was pretty close, wasn't it? And so we put together a team to go to Rochelle to help out, and immediately J.R.'s wife and his doctor said, don't even think about it. But there is no holding this guy back. And so he was there with the team, and he was lifting heavy debris and clearing, and he exhausted himself. And so he found the only thing he could do is just sit down in a pile of muck and sort through looking for people's valuables that he could return to them. Now, along the way, Samaritan's Purse, who was there, they told him, by the way, you know, you don't have to lift heavy debris. We also sponsor chaplains. And so if you want to do that, you could just float around loving on people and praying with them, and, and he, he lit up. Yeah. I tell you his story because he's one of my heroes. But I've got lots of heroes like J.R. at Christ Community Church. There, there are hundreds of people across our four campuses who live to serve other people in Jesus' name. They care for people's spiritual needs, serving in many of our ministries. They care for people's material needs. You know, a guy at one of our campuses, he told me recently he had retired and then he discovered he didn't have as much money as he used to have to give away. So he went back to work so he could give away more money to the Lord's work. Now imagine that. So we, we have people uh, meeting folks' emotional needs show up on a Tuesday night to care night as we care for people going through divorce or trying to break free of addiction or processing grief in their lives, loss. I mean, it's just amazing the hundreds of people who are involved in the name of Jesus. So yes, the church, Big C as well as Christ Community Church, we have warts and blemishes. But I want to tell you, there is no other organization on the face of the planet that has a track record for caring compassion like the Church of Jesus Christ. Not another one. And so if you've had doubts about becoming part of this group, if you're thinking, I'm not sure I want to be one of those Jesus followers, I'd say think again. The church is incredible. I'm going to ask you to bow together right now with me Across our four campuses, the bands are going to be taking the stage so that we can prepare for a time of communion. But I just, you know, I want to address two groups of people as we close this time of teaching. First, if you're a Christ follower, with the people that you work with, with the people you go to school with, with the, with the people in your neighborhood say you're a good advertisement for Christianity, when they look at you, kind of makes them want to become a Christ follower. Would they say that? And if not, is there, is there some area in your life where you say, oh, Jesus, I need to repent of this because I'm not being, I'm not being a good advertisement for you in this regard. Would you just take a moment and confess that to the Lord and say, I want to be a better ambassador. I want to shine for you. If you've never become involved in meeting the needs of others, if you've not rolled up your sleeves around here, you're a sit and soak Christ follower instead of one who's serving others. Would you tell God right now, I want that to change. I want to learn how to serve. And then if you're a skeptic, 
Maybe you've been here for all five weeks of the series, maybe just today. But you've had doubts that have kept you from surrendering to Christ. I want to ask, what are you waiting for? I think we've given reasonable responses to doubts over the last five weeks. And I think becoming a part of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus, is a wonderful step to take. So right now, could you pray in your heart something like this? Oh, God, forgive me. I have spent my life going my way instead of your way. Right now, I want to repent of that rebellion. I want you to forgive me for doing things that offend you, for not doing things that would please you, that you've called me to do. I ask you to forgive me. I put my hope and my trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay for all the bad things I've ever done. And I want to learn what it means to follow Jesus every day as a member of his church. By the way, if you prayed that as we're bowed before God, if you prayed that, I would encourage you to make it a a formal decision after the service. Drop in at the Welcome Center of any of our four campuses and say, I just surrendered my life to Christ today. And we'd love to give you what we call a next steps packet. It's just a packet of information that'll help you get started in a walk with Christ. So that's yours. If you want to follow Jesus, stop and Ask for a next steps packet at the Welcome Center after the service. Lord Jesus, we're about to enter a time of communion where we recognize that you put it all on the line for us. Your death upon the cross was so that we could be given forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. Your resurrection from the dead provides us with new life to live a totally different kind of life than what we've lived in the past. As we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, help us to remember that in your name. Amen.